no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Hello and welcome to Media and the End of the World. This is Ralph Bellavo. Adam Kroom will be back with us shortly. Uh, he's out making the world safe for digital democracy, so uh, hopefully we'll all feel the benefits of that, and he'll be joining us again. Uh, and with me again today is Alani Stain, who's one of my colleagues here at the University of Oklahoma. Hello, Alani. How Hello, are you? Ralph. How are you? And, and Alani has brought with her a person who's uh, <laughs> visiting. This would be the uh, second of the Dream Course guests who have come through. And what was what's the theme of the Dream Course again? Uh, the theme or the topic of the Dream Course is being a woman in the 21st century. And we will bring a series of speakers from around the world and from all different disciplines and industries to talk about um, what it means to be a woman in the century that we're living in. Because here we are. Because in the 21st here we are century. in the 21st century. And it's and everything we were promised. We have jet cars. We mm -hmm. have teleportation. No, actually, we have none of that stuff. <laughs> and we still have women, though. Yeah, we still have women. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there's still a lot that needs to be done to make sure that their roles are treated equitably in this lovely world of ours. Definitely. And so uh, hopefully the, the course and the guests that are coming in who will be speaking to students at the University of Oklahoma will help to move that forward. And I'm going to ask Alani to introduce our guest today. Okay. So our guest today is Paula Thompson, who came all the way from South Africa, well as the executive manager at the at Vozamoya, which is um, a project that they run at the Hillcrest Aid Center in um, Durban, South Africa. And Paula shared with us last night a variety of stories and projects that they are working on at Vozamoya, uh, which started mainly as the Dreams for Africa project in which Paula and her colleagues aim to empower and um, give aspiration and hope back to women in South Africa who live with HIV and AIDS and whose families have been affected by the epidemic in the country. So Paula, welcome and thank you again for being here. Thank you. It's great to be in um in Oklahoma and um, it was really great to connect with the students yesterday. Thank you. Well, we're very glad to have you here. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about how this project got started? Um, the Hillcrest Aids Centre has been uh, around for 27, 27 years. And basically they were the sort of first responders to the HIV epidemic in South Africa with and just starting off on a very basic level with two nurses going out into the community and doing home-based care, which is just caring for anyone that didn't have anyone to care for them. Um, and what they found was quite horrific. We had uh, young children caring for mothers who were bedridden, and they would just go into the home and nurse, wash the patient, uh, perhaps pay, uh, prepare food. And, um, and then as the patient recovered, they realized that the patients now needed food, and so we had a, started. They started a, a food program, and basically got the patient back on their feet. But soon realised that this was not a sustainable um, um, uh, way. 
um, to actually help on a larger scale. And um, and from that, Wozumoya, the economic empowerment project of the Hillcrest Aid Centre was born. And that was really to transfer patients off the feeding scheme um, to be able to, uh, to enable them to earn an income which would allow them to uh, feed their families and also maintain health. Okay, and so what's the what's the main operation of the uh, of this in terms of like the community outreach? Um, so we it's it's there are quite a number of projects. There's a twenty four bed respite unit, which uh, cares for very sick patients. Um, we have a granny group project, which works with grannies who are looking after multiple children. Um, most of those um, are orphans from their own children. And we've got an education project, a horticulture project, which puts gardens back into into communities, food gardens. And we have Wozumoya, which is the economic um, empowerment project, basically teaching um, a, a woman, mainly woman, um, crafting skills, mainly traditional crafting skills, and um, and then assisting them in marketing those products, developing products, and um, just creating a safe environment for for crea- creativity. Yeah, we'll make sure to give the, uh, the the website so that people can see what some of the crafts are because they're they're very cool. There's some really neat stuff that they're they're creating. So I'll be happy to do that. So how how is it? I'm just kind of curious how they just uh, because this is so far away from the U.S. and we have our own ways of, of handling or un, unfortunately in a lot of cases not handling, making sure people understand about HIV and AIDS and everything like that. So how is that? Is there an education program for that uh, in South Africa? Um, we do have an education program and the government is is working towards that. Um, the problem is is really vast. I mean, we have 2,000 new infections daily. Um, and in KwaZulu-Natal, we have the highest rate of infection. Um, and on top of that, we have massive unemployment and massive poverty. So all of those impact with as much education that the government puts in. It's just not enough. It's just it's not it's not reaching everybody and it's not changing behaviors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, part of what's I know, and this is actually something that's happening here in Oklahoma, is that people aren't getting tested. And so they move from HIV infection to AIDS without ever having been tested. And so there's an effort going on here now to try to get that kind of going a little bit more frequently. So it's a, it's, it's a complicated, it's a, it's a health crisis that needs more attention than it's getting, certainly. Yeah, I think we've definitely reached a, a stage of complacency um, where, you know, initially it was, you know, people were very scared because they were going to die from this disease, whereas now it is a, a controllable disease. Um, and so there is definitely, you know, in, in South Africa as well, the resistance to testing, the resistance to um you know, uh, protection during sex. So, yeah, those are all all relevant as well in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's, of course, all the stigma attached to it and everything else yeah. that's, that's still a problem. Paula, can you give us like a, I guess, a real example or a real illustration of what the effect of HIV AIDS in South Africa is? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it is... 
it's very extreme. I mean, you start off with, I'll just give a like a normal example that that we experience uh, monthly, daily. You know, a woman would come in, she would have lost her partner to HIV and AIDS, and she would uh, seek help. She probably hadn't eaten for maybe two or three months. Um, her neighbors would be giving her little bits of food for her and her family. Um, she would be in a, a critical state of, of health as well. She would need um, health care. And um, the clinics in South Africa are overburdened and um, a lot of patients are, are turned away or they have to wait for six months before they can get an appointment at a, at a government hospital. So, you know, a woman would come in, she would have no income, um, no food, and you know, basically at the center we would, we would try and um, do a test, um, do an economic assessment, and then try and help link her up with a craft skill so that she could start earning money. But, you know, yeah, what that looks like is kids perhaps not going to school, um, malnourishment. I mean, a lot of kids in South Africa are malnourished. Um, and so the impact really is on, on the kids. And then you've got families that are broken up because there's no um, par a parent, they've lost a parent. Um, and um, then there's like turning to drugs. Um, and it just, it really, yeah, it just it, it just goes on and on. From what I understand, also that the there's a if you want to break it down, like an older segment of the older people in society, then the middle section, or in terms of age, and then the young people. That the middle section of society in many communities are basically um, eliminated because of the disease, and that there's young people and there's children. And then there's old people um, and that the old people in many cases have to take care of and are responsible for the the kids um, who are in these communities. What will happen when the old people, I mean, they will not live forever, but what will happen to those communities if the older people who are now taking care of and basically carrying this community to some extent, if they are not there anymore? How will those communities cope with this kind of the older people are gone, the middle group of middle aged people are gone, and it's basically young people who, as you said yesterday, um, out of the 2,000 infections a day, 1,000 is for women between 15 and 29 years old who get infected? Um, yeah, it's... I don't. I, I don't know the answer to that question because I mean, at the moment, the the grannies and the grandpas have a massive burden. Mm -hmm. um, they're looking after. I think we've got one granny at the centre who looks after twenty three children, and those are from her own children who've passed away from HIV and AIDS. And also, the those grannies are not equipped to look after teenagers. They have the generational gap is so extreme. So grannies are having to relearn how to become parents again. Um, and when they go, you know, there's also the moral fabric that they that they 
transmit. So I don't know how what will happen when when we don't have those um, grannies um, to look after these children. It looks like there's an enormous number of orphans there already too. That, yeah. yeah. We have a massive problem. There's a lot of, and just even in our area, there are a lot of orphanages that um, look after uh, children. Um, at the Hillcrest Aid Centre, we always um, uh, have worked with adults because we feel that that actually uh, draws down to the kids um, because there isn't really, every a lot of organi- NGOs tend to uh, yeah, work with kids because um yeah it's the, the funding is more, is more readily available so it leaves very little um space for the adults to actually receive help but the, those adults are, are actually looking after 7 to 10 kids as well mm-hmm. so it's very important mm-hmm. yeah that just and that just i often wonder when these kind of things happen because it can cause kind of a generational trauma where you have, you know, entire groups like Alani, like what you were alluding to, who are, you know, kind of, it, it's like disruptions in the cultural flow. And so, and and this trauma that affects people for a much longer time, you know, later on in their lives. So it's it's a, it's, it's kind of a continuing problem that, that I think requires, you know, thinking ahead and trying to anticipate what's the social effect of that going to be. Yeah, and I mean, um, our major thing is that we have a lot of youth involved in crime and and drugs because there isn't that familial support, you know, that's that's been broken down and eroded. So, and also um, the poverty is, is extreme. So you've got... Um, young guys committing crimes at 19, 17, 15, and um, and you know that that just makes the environment that um, you know uh, untenable, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that is where Vosa Moya comes in because that is what people are working on, um, and what many of your projects focus on, like you told um, in some of the classes yesterday that how you discovered the lack of hope and lack of dreams and aspirations among many people because of this reality. And I mean, you uh, it would be sort of strange if it was any anything other than that because if you look at the reality that people live in and the things they have to deal with every day, I can imagine that being hopeful and having dreams for your future is not necessarily something that is high on your agenda. So that is where the Dreams for Africa projects started. Um, can you talk about that a little and how you came about with this project and what the goal is with this? Um, in sort of 2006, we um, had always been interested in art therapy and there was a technique that was being used in South Africa, a process called body mapping. And that was where you would lie down on the ground and your body would be drawn on a piece of cardboard and you would document your outward scars your um, and then go deeper in and if you had asthma you would document that and then even on a deeper level like your psychological um, uh, problems your psychological makeup uh, things that were worrying you and what came out of that workshop was that all the participants actually had no hope for the future 
and we found that quite disturbing that you know most of the most of the participants thought they were going to die and they worried for their family and we thought how can we use art as a as a way to um to create hope again and to try and bring back uh, dreams into into everyday life and so we started the the dreams for africa projects and the first project on that was to do a, a giant beaded map or a love letter um, at what went into our stadium. And we just asked everyone to do a small piece of that map. And um, and in while they were making that, to think of their hope for the future, their dreams, their aspirations. And so every lady brought back a little piece and we stitched that all back together like a patchwork and created this beautiful artwork, which in itself was very um, healing on a collective level because suddenly you have all these um, pieces that are are in, individually are kind of random or meaningless, but as a collective whole made up something like beyond our wildest imaginings. And that even provided healing for the greater community because when they saw this piece of artwork they were moved um, and people random people were just saying we made this map there was this collective ownership of this piece of work and from there we were kind of inspired to to carry on and we also then made the dreams for Africa chair with a very similar process and the dreams for those those objects were very simple. It was just like clean, clean running water, um, education for my children, um, schooling. I want my kids to get a better schooling than than I was able to, or that you know that my kids will be able to read and write. Just like very basic needs, really, um, that most of us have already. But you know, for these women, those were very, very. Um, were, were not available to them at all. And um, the, with the dream chair, again, we pieced all these dreams together. And again, when the, the piece was finished, it had such an impact on really everyone that we that we met. And the idea was that you would sit in the chair and you would have a dream for Africa, um, but a dream for yourself or dream for your country, didn't matter where you came from. And the chair was eventually invited to all the major cities in South Africa. And then um, as it became more well-known, it was invited to go to New York and it traveled around New York as well. And the reaction from people in New York was, you know, was mind-popping for me because people would stop and go, what is that? We want to sit on it. This is amazing. Where does it come from? Um, so, and it went to Holland and even um, went to a hospital in Holland and um, to a cancer ward. And all the kids in the cancer ward got up and had a dream in it. And it was very, very uh, moving for the um, for the Dutch team that, that had taken the, the chair. And eventually, they they actually made a replica um, in in Holland with patchwork and and um, yeah. So it, it 
it it really had a a profound impact on people wherever it went. Also, was then invited to Holland. I mean, not to Holland, sorry, Germany. And yeah, went around Germany. So it really got around. And yeah, the happy ending to that is that we were eventually sold it for a million rand. And not a Good million, audit. not a million dollars. <laughs> 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 and we built a beautiful um, new craft center because we were working from a, an old garage, which ah. was very, very small. So now we have like a, a beautiful um, art center, which, you know, we can accommodate a lot of overseas visitors. And it was bought by a young South African woman um, for her home. Wow. And um, so it's just it's sitting in her home now. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's, That's kind of amazing. amazing. Yeah. That's such a beautiful yeah. story. I was going to ask you last night, but didn't. Um, you mentioned in the class initially that uh, there's a very strong patriarchal um, perception and reality in these communities in South Africa. When these women crafters do things like this and when they are able to feed families and help their communities because you also talked yesterday about how much of the money they get doesn't really go to help themselves but to help the bigger community get on their feet and extended families do men look at women differently because of this or is it is it a nice thing to have, but we're still in charge, kind of, in terms of how the society functions? Um, yeah, it's 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 very difficult for women in South Africa. I mean, I think we have one of the highest rates of child and woman abuse. And so women earning an income, a lot of the women initially would have to hand over their income to their husbands. And then they had really no control over where where that money would go. And in a lot of instances, it was spent on alcohol and um, not on food and the basic necessities. Um, but I've also seen like incredible things because, you know, women have, while they've been living with their husband who may be slightly abusive. They've been building a house on another property and then they just get up and leave. <laughs> <laughs> they take the kids with them mm-hmm. and they've got their money and they go off. Mm-hmm. Wow. But it, it's, yeah, it's very, very complicated. The, um, the sort of traditional vice that a lot of women in is, is almost in, is, um, inescapable. Mm-hmm. So. That is such an interesting concept to me because I I did a study one time among women in Bangladesh who own their own businesses and framed that off of previous studies that sort of talked about how economic empowerment in for women doesn't necessarily mean social Um, empowerment that exactly what you're talking about that women have an income and instead of families feeling that you know this is a good thing the men in some cases feel threatened and they beat the women up or they take their money or they don't include them in any of the decision making so that in many societies there's 
economic empowerment doesn't necessarily mean women are also socially empowered and lifted out of this um, cultural way of thinking that they have um, been exposed to even when they didn't have money. So that is an interesting concept because you would think that you know, once you have money, you can stand on your own feet. And like you said, many people do, but there still is that, um, you know, I don't like the fact that you make money because now you're independent and now you, or the husbands take the money and use it for something else, like you've mentioned. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of our women, I mean, exactly that. I mean, a lot of a lot of the, the women who, who come into the center have um, have lost their husbands, mm-hmm. so this is their first time that they've ever earned money, mm-hmm. and that's that's very empowering, yeah. um, because then they have full control over their lives, over their money, mm-hmm. and then you see real change. And I mean, for us, we after sort of sixteen, yeah, you know, sixteen, seventeen years of of economic empowerment, we're seeing the first generation of crafters children being accepted and going to university which is like a massive massive milestone Mm -hmm. um and so that you know i feel that's an indicator that we on the on the right track that you know women are being uh, being empowered i mean it's also you know we also like a complicated space because we're dealing with like a traditional craft um, which a lot of women feel is not a real job. Um, so a lot of women like do it, but they would love if they got a job as even like a domestic worker, they would they would probably take it up. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and even though they would earn less, it's mm-hmm. just more the the idea of job security is is also very important to to women um and we have to keep trying to say this is your own business this is your own your you, you know your own um you know you your own boss you you work from home um you can still look after your kids whereas if you're a domestic worker you're going out to somebody's house every day you're working from 8 to 5 mm-hmm. And you've you've really got no control, and you're earning a a much smaller smaller wage. So yeah, that's that was interesting to me, and um, yeah, it's a funny. So I wanted to ask about one of the other projects. I don't know if you have a, a, a ton to say about it, but it's the, the I think it's called Little Traveler. Yeah, oh, she has a ton to say oh, about that. Yeah. It's the most fascinating can, can you story. Talk about that project. Yeah, so the Little Travelers we we started as um, uh, just a little beaded figurine. At that stage, we were only making AIDS ribbons, and we wanted to really branch out and make something. A little bit different, and uh, we started making the little travelers, which are little dolls made in our own image, and those really just took off locally and globally. We were sending hundreds, thousands to Canada, and um, then to Germany. I think at one stage we were exporting them to like eleven or twelve different countries. And those just really were bread and butter money for the crafters that they could, um, you know, make this little doll. It took about 15 minutes to make, and they would get immediate um, money, uh, money, 
which would enable them to buy bread and milk um, for home. So really just like a, a yeah, subsistence living, if you, if you will, from that. Yeah, I noticed there's a there's a map of little travelers on the website that shows where they've gone. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. really, and they're adorable. Yeah, no, they're great, yeah. and like they come in all different characters from, uh, from rugby players to rusters to mothers and babies to, <laughs> yeah, healers, warriors. And you have said yesterday too that if I make if I come up with the concept of let's say the mother and baby. That concept is mine as a crafter. No one else makes the mother and babies. It's something like unique to me or something that people, they sort of own their design and their ideas. Yeah, we try and um, have a a level of intellectual property. So if a crafter comes up with an, an idea, a necklace, little traveler, that belongs to the, to them mm-hmm. and no no one else will make that so it's also fostered a, a a culture of creativity because everybody wants to have their own design because that means that you know they're making they can make more work um, because they'll get orders for that new design and so, yeah, and then a lot of it also it also goes a long way to empowering the crafter because to meet the needs of the orders that come in for that product, they have to then train somebody else. Mm-hmm. So they'll train a sister or a brother or a, a neighbor. And so the project, in a way, multiplies out, and those women actually become business owners in their own in their own right. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a, a quote on the site from one of the crafters who makes them that I feel like it'd be, because I think it's just such an amazing thought. And she writes or says, I often lay them on my sofa and admire them for a while. I look at them and wish they could talk, breathe, and walk. That's how much I love them. Beating makes such a big difference in my life. I make life out of it. My entire house comes from the little travelers. My fridge, my sofa, plaster on my walls, everything. When I make travelers, I see a person, a friend, and that's why you make them beautiful because I'm making a person. Yeah. <laughs> that is so that's amazing. really amazing. Yeah. Can you talk a little about the project you did with the um, disposable cameras and giving each of the beaters a camera to sort of document their lives and what happened after that? Yeah, I think, you know, as the project developed, um, you know, and and as, as um, um, sorry, as, as the project developed, our supporters from overseas wanted to know where did the travelers, little travelers come from, who were they? Um, and so we wanted to really be able to show that, but sending a documentary photographer into the community, we felt was just, it was turning the beadworkers, crafters into into objects. And so we thought, how could we get the crafters to actually tell us themselves who they were, where they were going. And so we managed to get sponsorship of, of I think, 160 disposable cameras which were given out to the crafters. And they, in turn, were told that they had to photograph the things they loved, um, the things that were, were near them, um, their shop where they bought their groceries from, perhaps their family. And the images that came from that were absolutely extraordinary and 
just were yeah, yeah very heart heartwarming. We we ended up having a big exhibition of all the Im- all the uh, crafters images at a at our local gallery, and um, and so yeah, we were able to to convey where the where the travellers came from, who made them, um, and yeah, in a very real and mm-hmm. and um, I feel uh, honouring way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that can be. I do a lot with documentary and teaching documentary, and actually empowering people to have the ability to tell their own stories really makes an enormous amount of difference. Like you're saying, instead of yeah. turning them to an object from another producer, they're able to actually construct their own story. Which is really remarkable. Yeah, and it was beautiful because you were pulling in the threads from, uh, you know, 160 uh, cr- different crafters. So you had 160 stories, but it was a similar story mm-hmm. because the women come from similar areas, similar backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, you know, it's been also such a joy for us because we recently had our our 16th anniversary of Little Travelers. And so we had this big party, and what we did is we pulled out um, uh, the old photos, and we showed the woman their their old photos, and they were shrieking with laughter (laughs) because they said, look, yeah, look, I was in a mud hut. Now I'm going to a brick house. And so you could actually see the tangible difference Mm -hmm. in the woman's lives, uh, you know, of what, the, the little travelers have have been able to do and um, yeah so that was very powerful and also yeah again just a reminder that yeah we're on the right track mm-hmm. and although we often feel you know a bit disheartened because the the scale of the problem and the scale of the unemployment is so huge um, in South Africa you don't really feel like um, anything you do is making a difference but then you have moments like those where, um, yeah, you just you feel the joy, yeah. And you showed some of the pictures last night. I was so amazed to think that people who know almost probably nothing about photography and who use disposable cameras could put together these pictures. And just the composition and the aspects that they included in that was so striking that I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I mean, we had some professional photographers coming in and having a look at the photos, and they were also, they were blown away. I mean, the Mm. photographs were um, unbelievable, and I still, yeah, I still go back to <laughs> to that <laughs> exhibition as like one of my highlights yeah. of my life. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think there's this there's this amazing thing. I think photography, especially, the, the, I know there's some people in in the U.S. who have been developing programs that are outreach to students with autism and using photography as a way for them to learn how to develop their own vocabulary. So it's an amazingly powerful medium that I think we all take for granted because there's it's and particularly because it's become kind of disposable because of the way our phones work. You know, we take mm-hmm. hundreds of pictures and take pictures of our food, you know, whatever <laughs> else it is. All these weird things that we do with photography, but it still has such an amazing capacity for storytelling. Yeah, and I mean, I think back then, you know, when you're working with impoverished communities, to get a photo is, was so such a valuable. Thing, mm-hmm. you know, such a valuable object for that family. Um, and so to be given the opportunity to take 27 photos was just, you know, it was so exciting. And um, I think I shared the story that we got one roll of film that was 
um, taken by Esther, and she had taken all her photos in front of this fridge. And I said, I asked her, I said, Esther, why are all the photos in front of your fridge? And she said, because I'm so proud of it, because I just <laughs> bought this fridge with all the money we had earned from from the project. So, yeah, I just, yeah, very special, very special stories. Well, we'll make sure to, um, we will put the, the link for the craft shop that's connected with this on our website so people can look at, uh, and and the, the site that's got some of the history of it too, because it's such a, a fascinating project. And where do you see, is there a plan to develop a new direction or continue what you're doing? Or are you hopeful or are you frustrated? I guess that's, you know, um. so it sounds like a, I could see either, you know, but I guess yeah. I think to do this kind of work, you probably do have to be kind of optimistic and you do have tangible evidence on a regular basis that it's having a positive impact on people too so yeah I think you you know you keep going and I think you know certainly for me enough is never enough um I just feel you know there's like a you climb over the mountain you get to the top and um, <laughs> there's another mountain yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it is definitely you know there, there are times where I feel quite depressed and and low and then the other times that I, I have this amazing sense of 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 joy and um you know we've just had one of those moments we didn't have a lot of work and we got this massive uh contract to do the biggest beaded billboard in the world and you know what did we say last night how many <laughs> Like it was f- how many meters by how many? Uh, it was twelve meters by nine meters. So, so I don't know. Thirty-six in feet. feet by twenty-seven feet billboard, yeah. beaded billboard. Wow! And you know, for us, that was like all the crafters were working at the center, which is quite an unusual thing. And there was just this energy, and like people were singing while they were working, <laughs> mm. and. Um, uh, the ladies really earned a lot of money from that. And, you know, at the end of every day, everyone just said thank you. I mean, they didn't have to thank me because it was, you know, it's not really, um, I don't need to be thanked. But, you know, the, there was just this thank you. I can buy my kids school shoes. She hasn't had, she's been going to school without school shoes. And so just like these basic things, every day someone would come and, be quite emotional, even crying, just like just to be able to, you know, have that little bit of income um, that they didn't have before. Mm-hmm. I, I like the idea that there's this linkage in a lot of the chair and some of these other things you're describing of people doing individual work, but then this collective work at the same yeah. time. So it's got this ability to be both important for individual women's empowerment and then for the empowerment of the community of women which I think is really, really remarkable. Um, yeah, I, I always like picture it like we're sort of broken fragments floating around and then we kind of like glued together <laughs> and we create, you know, a much stronger animal mm-hmm. from all those broken fragments. And, you know, that, that to me, um, that makes me happy. And also just like, you know, and that also speaks to women being together and working together. And there's definitely like on a Friday, I always say, if you want to come visit the center, come on a Friday because it's just like this real joy. Everyone's together. There's a sense of togetherness, community, love, friendship. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for coming in and talking to us about this, Paul. We really appreciate it. Alani, thank you for coming by and bringing Paula by. You're welcome. And uh, we will make sure to put the information online about the website so you can have a look for yourself. So thank you. And that's it for Media and the End of the World. 